0: In this episode, I'm going to read you a passage in full, then I'm going to pull out a few thoughts that I really want our hearts to hear together. Then, wherever you're sitting right now, I want you to, in that moment after I'm done, guess for yourself who wrote the passage I'm about to read, and then I'm going to tell you why I believe that writer wrote it. Sound good? All right. So here it is in full. Thank God. God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that in his great mercy, we have been born again into a life full of hope through Christ's rising again from the dead. You can now hope for a perfect inheritance beyond the reach of change and decay reserved in heaven for you. And in the meantime, You are guarded by the power of God operating through your faith till you enter fully into the salvation which is all ready for the revealing of the last day. This means tremendous joy to you, I know, even though you are temporarily harassed by all kinds of trials and temptations. This is no accident. It happens to prove your faith which is infinitely more valuable than gold—and gold, as you know, even though it is ultimately perishable—must be purified by fire. This proving of your faith is planned to bring you praise and honor and glory in the day when Jesus Christ reveals himself. And though you have never seen him, yet I know that you love him. At present, You trust Him without being able to see Him, and even now He brings you a joy that words cannot express, and which has in it a hint of the glories of heaven. And all the time, you are receiving the result of your faith in Him, the salvation of your own souls. So that was the passage, and now I want to begin at the beginning and read in short segments with just a few thoughts interspersed, so here we go. Thank God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that in his great mercy, we have been born again into a life full of hope through Christ's rising again from the dead. And I, friends, I wonder if you caught this, that that first sentence is just the most wonderful layering of inward, sort of stacked up prepositional phrases, really propositions that are ours, if only we'll take them, make them ours. Here they are in the great mercy of God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ into a life full of hope to which we've been born again through the rising of Jesus from death and the grave. Friends, this is who we are and where we live our lives in mercy ever into hope and ever through a Savior who cannot be kept dead. Thus, we go on, you can now hope for a perfect inheritance beyond the reach of change and decay, reserved in heaven for you. And in the meantime, you are guarded by the power of God operating through your faith till you enter fully into the salvation, which is already ready for the revealing of the last day. You know, it strikes me that our writer here makes a clear delineation between two states of time, our present and our future. The past, apart from the work of Jesus in it, is really already as if dead to him. So what is our future to hold? Well, receiving a perfect inheritance, changeless, matchless, undecayed in heaven— Full salvation, revealed in the wonder of its glory at the last day, i.e., the judgment. That's our future. Now, how about our present? Well, our present is the firmly founded hope of knowing that that perfect inheritance is already ours. It is reserved for us in heaven. And our day-by-day lived experience may be that of the power of God cascading through us as we trust Him and believe in Him. But do you see this sort of trick that the writer has played on us? Our present and our future are identical. Perfect inheritance today, perfect inheritance someday. Heaven reserved and heaven fully ours. The power of God now, and the power of God readily revealed. Friends, two words make it so. Did you catch them? Hope and faith. To trust what is to come, and to trust it now. Let's go on. This means tremendous joy to you, I know. Even though you are temporarily harassed by all kinds of trials and temptations. This is no accident, which, by the way, is one of the surest grounds for hope available to the follower of Jesus. Our pain, our struggles, our trials and temptations are not some needless part, some random chaos tied to a meaningless random existence. We receive our life from life himself. And what is the hopeful reason for even our trials? The writer goes on. It happens to prove your faith, which is infinitely more valuable than gold. And gold, as you know, even though it is ultimately perishable, must be purified by fire. This proving of your faith is planned to bring you praise and honor and glory in the day when Jesus Christ reveals himself. Now, right there, is a truly wild thought. The Christian life, though it follows, yes, in the humble, quiet, simple, loving way of Jesus, is actually meant to end like his in experience of glory. Our faith in him, our daily earnest obedience, our daily earnest hope are resulting in a likeness unto him, unto him who is glory incarnate. But how are we to keep moving forward? I mean, these days can be dulling. It is the easiest thing in the world to just give up. Well, listen. And though you have never seen him, yet I know that you love him. At present, you trust him without being able to see him. and Even now, he brings you a joy that words cannot express. And which has in it a hint of the glories of heaven, and all the time you are receiving the result of your faith in Him, the salvation of your own souls. You know, so much of the waywardness woven into what is called, quote, uh, Christian history is really the result of people claiming to believe in Him, to believe in Jesus without coming to love him. Let me show you what I mean. Dogged, dogmatic, intellectualized beliefs about Jesus and his life become mere catechisms, dusty books of theology like every world religion has. Dogged, dogmatic, intellectualized beliefs about the cross and resurrection become pure argumentation Accept these facts, or be damned. Dogged, dogmatic, intellectualized beliefs about faith, hope, joy become just words. Hollow things. Nothing. Dogged, dogmatic, intellectualized beliefs about the salvation of our souls become a cudgel with which to beat the the so-called non-believer about the head. Friends, let me show you the difference. A heart falling in love views Jesus and his life as the alive, living person whom one can actively follow today. A heart falling in love gets broken at the cross and then revived at the sight of the resurrection every day. A heart falling in love puts faith in Jesus himself. Hope in Jesus himself finds its joy only in Jesus himself. A heart falling in love is overwhelmed that love is the reality of salvation and then thus extends salvation to all in Jesus in love. Do you see the difference that our love for Jesus makes? Here's a big statement. It is the lovers of Jesus of Nazareth who have defined all the positive outcomes of the church's first 2,000 years. Uh, Most else of these 2,000 years have just been a series of false starts at best. Falling in love, we follow him. Following any other way, we will almost inevitably lose him. All right, enough of me there. Wherever you are, wherever you're sitting, as you've been listening, who do you think wrote that passage? You think it was John, or Paul, or Peter, or the unnamed writer of Hebrews? Who do you think? Well, I'll tell you. It was Peter. And now, in utilizing your imagination and mine, I I want us to see, in my opinion, perhaps why he wrote those glorious words. Let's imagine him, our friend Simon Peter, sitting up there kind of in the prow of a boat. It's very, very early morning. The waters are mostly still. It's that beautiful time of the day where the colors are hanging over the the sea. But the feeling in this nearly full boat is disappointment, frustration, anger, that awkwardness that comes when things for a fisherman do not go their way. Until our friend, Peter, focuses his attention upon the shoreline, upon a man who is standing there right at the fringe of the waters, with a charcoal fire quietly burning behind him. He raises his hands there on the beach to cup his mouth to get his words out over the water. And so they, they're a little behind his lips as he shouts out, Did you catch anything, boys? And everyone in the boat, with exasperation and perhaps a curse word behind them, says, No! The voice echoes out again. Try throwing your nets on the other side! And for some reason they do. And the nets go down. And in the most unbelievable experience of deja vu for our friend, Simon Peter, suddenly they fill with so many fish that the boat begins to nearly sink to that side. And right then, our friend's friend, John, shouts out, pointing, It's the Lord. And Peter, who for some strange reason has been fishing stark naked, <laughs> puts on his tunic and dives overboard headfirst. He swims with all his might. He swims foolishly because, in fact, the boat is now sailing past him and gets to shore before him. And so there is the risen Jesus, sitting next to a charcoal fire upon which are a few fish. They know not where those came from. He invites them into the circle. It's that smell of charcoal burning, of the smoke rising, of the fresh smell of the sea in the morning. And our friend Peter is over on the gunwale of the boat catching out fish from the net, counting them, pretending that this is important for him to do. Do you know why? Because even yet, sometime here we are within the 40 days after this glorious thing we call Easter, Peter is thinking still of those three unforgivable momentary moments from just last month when he had irrevocably in his mind broken fellowship with Jesus. He doesn't know what Jesus knows about that night, and yet, also deep down, he knows perfectly well that Jesus knows all. Breakfast ends. Jesus looks at him and says, Let's go for a walk. And as they walk southward on the pebbly shoreline, Jesus, looking out to sea, simply says, Simon Peter, do you love me? And Peter does what we all do when we feel not fully forgiven, when we feel only half seen. With great emphasis, he says, Lord, you know I love you. Then, Peter, feed my sheep. A silent moment passes. They walk. The only sound is the sound of the water lapping the shore and their sandals on the pebbly beach. Simon D. loved me. Lord, you know I love you. Then, feed my lambs. Walking. Simon, are you my friend? Lord, you know I am. Then feed my sheep. Friends, you know about this. Three invitations into a servant leadership, into the extension of the kingdom of heaven via his own human life, three ways in which Jesus has set him free of three betrayals. And there's a conversation that ensues with John standing there. There's more things that you can read for yourself in John 21. But the image in my mind that I can't shake of late is of after that conversation, just Jesus and Simon Peter, two men standing there looking out over the sunrise waters of the Sea of Galilee, the only two men in human history who have stood atop those waters or any waters together. That past moment is a moment that is shared, a memory shared between them. And so is this one now. Friends, here's my point. Jesus will only ever be as alive to you as the degree to which you will personally receive your complete forgiveness from him partially forgiven people should simply just not be out there touting the reality of easter they they don't know about it in some ways they don't know him When we read 1 Peter 1, when we read John 21, when we contemplate the resurrection through the eyes of Peter, we must remember we are all Peter. We, you and I, must all receive personal forgiveness. This is all between us and Jesus. And yet you must never forget he is alive to forgive you.